don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hi there, welcome to a second captain's New Year's Eve special. It's only a matter of hours before the end of 2019, and it's a pleasure to spend one of those remaining hours with you. Owen here with Ken and Murph. Hi guys. Hey Owen, how are you? I'm good, but there's no getting away from the fact that it was another turbulent year around the world, socially, politically, environmentally, and in these troubled times I feel it's important to grab onto something that can centre us, something pure and joyous and uncomplicated, something... Well, like I, sport Oh that sounds about right Alright sure 2019 had its low moments there too I mean it'll go down in history As the year that saw The self-destruction of the FAI And possibly the ruination Of Irish football in this country uh, The Rugby World Cup Failed its most basic task Of fulfilling all its fixtures Because it was played In a country that experiences Typhoons In the middle of that country's Typhoon season <laughs> yeah, There was the banning of Russia From the Olympics and World Cup mm. In the seemingly never-ending fallout From its state-sponsored okay. doping scandal But besides okay. those stories And many more like them Sport retains the capacity <laughs> to thrill us and unite us like yeah. nothing else. Look, it's a new year, Murph. I have to feel I got to believe in something. Yeah. Okay. 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 I, I can see where you're coming from there. I mean, you could have picked out other instances from the world of sport that you know don't depress me quite as much as those last few examples you just read out. But there you go. Yeah, if you listen to Second Captain Saturday during the summer, you know the deal. We chat to our guests about their own incredible lives and careers while also discovering what we can about their passion for sport before ranking their achievements in a bid to find Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person. And what a fantastic guest we have for you to close out the year. Samantha Power is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, former war correspondent who made the jump from being a journalist and activist to being a government insider when she worked as Barack Obama's human rights advisor. From there, she went on to become the the youngest ever US ambassador to the UN and all of this after growing up for the first eight years of her life here in Ireland. It's a really extraordinary story and it's brilliantly told in her memoir The Education of an Idealist which came out this year. But what about her passion for sport I hear you ask? This is the Samantha Power you don't know but will by the end of the show. It's the Samantha Power who spent the morning of her wedding day in Waterville organising a game of football between the guests and horrifying her hair and makeup people when she arrived (laughs) back to the hotel covered in mud. This is my kind of second captain's guest, guys. That's what I'm saying. Samantha Power coming right up. I know you've already announced our 2019 greatest non-sports person, sports person, Murph, but I think it's only fair to reopen that competition, give Samantha her shot at the title. What has she got to beat? Could have been a contender. It could have been somebody. So I know what you're thinking. Back in August, we'd already anointed our 2019 non-sports person, sports person of the year, and it was Labour peer, apartheid campaigner, and all-round decent skin, Peter Hayne. But it's the holiday season, and as you say, on we are giving Samantha Power a belated end-of-year shot at the title. We've checked with Peter Hayne, he's cool with this. And by cool with it, I mean we didn't check with him, but we're presuming he's cool with it. So Samantha has 84 of Peter Hayne's points to beat, and I give her a strong, strong chance. Let's see if Samantha Power can blow this thing wide open on our second captain's New Year's Eve special. She'll be in studio right after we play you what was one of the most special musical moments of the year, Sinead O'Connor on the Late Late, performing Nothing Compares to You and Knocking Them Out of the Park. It's been so Nothing can stop these lonely tears from falling 
Ah, the little jump when the drums come in, the smile and wave to the camera at the end. That was absolutely brilliant stuff from Sinead O'Connor, if you saw that performance on The Late Late. It is my great pleasure now to introduce our guests on this Second Captain's New Year's Eve special. Samantha Power is a proud Irish woman who left for America as a kid and has gone on to achieve unbelievable things, including serving as the US Ambassador to the United Nations. She's also an absolute sports nut. Ambassador Power, thanks so much for dropping in. So happy to be here. The idea of this show is that we like to talk to people with fascinating careers and life stories and that kind of thing, Um, but ideally with an interest in sport as well. So I was very pleased to open your book and see on page one, very first page, you describe yourself as, what was it, a, an obsessive sports fan. So we're on to a winner here, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a huge part of my life uh, from the beginning. And it was my career fantasy growing up was to do something like what you're doing. Um, <laughs> maybe we could trade places at some point and you can negotiate with the Russians. Uh, and I, and I think I, we'll, uh, no, we'll leave it as, <laughs> as, as it is, thanks. But uh, yeah, when I, when I um, sort of, leveled out uh, in in my own playing career in various sports, um, then it was what would be the next best thing, surely, to host a sports talk show or be a sports presenter or a commentator. And so for a lot of my life, that was my ambition. Well, let's go back a little further then, because you said from the very start, for, for as long as you can remember, like a lot of us, you were into it. How, how did you get that love of sports? My parents, I'm sure. Right. I mean, my father was um, just one who consumed sports of all kinds on television whether soccer, rugby, tennis. My mother, he was he also played golf very uh, seriously, had a low handicap was and just did it especially as his career kind of tapered off. Uh, drinking and golf and playing the piano were sort of his vocations and my mother and you know kind of a, ahead of her time for her age although there were her sisters were the same um, you know they were they played the sisters played field hockey for Munster my mother did uh, they played tennis for Munster uh, my mother played field hockey for Ireland then she went over to England to go to medical school took up squash having played tennis and then became completely consumed with this tiny little rubber ball banging the ball hours and hours on end and so as a kid, I would have grown up watching sports on the telly again with them, both uh, consuming them and then just being their sidekick as my mother hit a rubber squash ball and my father hit a small, um, I don't know, what is, how do you describe what a golf ball is, the, the substance of a golf ball? But Dimples, I was a, 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 cork, a spectator. Yeah, so a, cork, a little cork middle, ball. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there was a lot of exposure. And then when in 1979, I was nine, my mother left my father, largely because of the drinking and so forth, and went to America with another Irishman who was not sporty himself at all, Eddie Burke. They ran away to Pittsburgh, and when I landed, I was confronted with um, a kind of lingua franca, you know, of my (laughs) new domain that was baseball, 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 and then professional football, professional football, professional football, neither of which I knew anything about. But as is often the case, sports is a great equalizer. It's not that hard to pick up the rules. I knew rounders, so making the transition to baseball wasn't crazy. Professional football was harder with all the helmets and the gear. And I had the usual kind of Europeans contempt for the helmets and the padding. And, you know, haven't you seen, have you seen rugby? The rugby have players seen, do yeah, all the same things. Exactly, all, exactly. Yeah. So I made all those arguments. Um not making myself very popular, but baseball in particular, because right when I arrived, the, the local team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, were making this run. It would end up culminating in the World Series. They, they won the championship. 
And it was just the talk of the town. And so when you're looking around and you just want to fit in, my way of fitting in was to learn the rules and then more than that to try to make myself an actual expert. I saw in a New Yorker profile of you a few years ago, power became American through baseball. That sounds almost a bit schmaltzy, but is it true? I think so. I mean, at least I became I came to feel American. I don't know that I, you know, how how, how deep it went, but I, I definitely was capable of trading baseball cards in the neighborhood. You know, I learned the history. I, uh, one of the things that when you watch professionals on TV in, in American baseball, especially in those days, they had these big wads of tobacco, like they their cheeks <laughs> bulging out. And then there was this chewing gum called Big League Chew, you know, and we kids, we would put the Big League Chew, the chewing gum in, in, in our cheek and it would bulge out as if it was tobacco. And so my mother's like, oh my God, like sport is one thing, but rotting teeth on behalf of looking like your sports idol, At maybe not so much. nine years of age or whatever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I, I, yeah, I threw myself into it. I mean, we, you know, we're talking about watching and and consuming it as a, as a spectator, but also I lived in a neighborhood of all boys. We had a backyard, like everything was bigger in America. How, so how we had your to, neighborhood was all boys? Just the sense. luck of the draw. I mean, <laughs> um, it happens. I suppose somebody else's neighborhood might have been all girls, but um, just, just as it happened, my, my peer group there, my play group kind of was boys. There were no... No girls on the block uh, on this little cul-de-sac, and but we had this yard that was, you know, substantial, especially compared to anything I'd had in, in Dublin, and it became the place where everybody gathered from the neighborhood to play baseball. And there was a fence, so we treated it as a home run fence, and uh, you know, quickly learn how to throw like a boy, which uh, was was I, mean, I wouldn't have known it was throwing like a boy; it was just throwing and. And then played competitively little league softball, which was when they diverged. You know, boys played baseball and girls played softball, played soccer, um, you know, learned some tennis. I mean, it was just sports were everywhere. And there's such a big part of every country, really, but but certainly the, the place that I grew up in America. When you first moved over to America or were moved over to America, did you realize this magnitude of what was happening here? Did you know you were emigrating? No, no. I... I I even, when I was writing this book, this memoir, um, even when I went back over, I, I was trying to rack my brain. When did it occur to me that this was that there was a finality to this, or that the, or that like I wouldn't be going back to Mount Anvil, or I, w- I wouldn't be playing rounders? That baseball was just going to be uh, baseball. That it was these sports were going to be my sports, and these activities, these American activities, were now my future. And I don't think I ever had that moment of realization. It was all kind of mission creep, as they say. It was just incremental. My father died when I was – my father, who, had, who stayed in Dublin when my mother, uh, again, went away to America with my now stepfather. And he died when I was 14, so about four or five years after I left. And that certainly, in retrospect – um, probably was the moment in which it was much more likely that we would stay and I would do my full education over there. And my mother had to redo her medical training. You know, you can do it in Ireland, but then if you go someplace else, you have to do it again. And so in a way, I should have been more aware, but like as a kid, you just often roll with it. And I, and I think in a way, the good thing about being oblivious to how permanent this was becoming was that I don't have a memory or an experience, I didn't have an experience of a rupture with Ireland, you know, a sense of 
um, I'm giving up one nationality for another. I'm giving up one country for for another. I had a sense of kind of best of both worlds, and and only when my dad died did a different kind of rupture occur, and that was of course devastating. But it but it what it still didn't kind of detract from from my sense of being Irish or the, or like at no point did I think okay I've given I've renounced something sure. right it was more just I've added something. Yeah. There was a kind of dramatic scene, though, wasn't it? You're saying there was no rupture in that broader sense, but you, you paint this vivid picture in your book of a moment when you were home for Christmas. I think it was the first year mm. living in America. You are brought home for Christmas. And maybe you can describe what happened between yourself and your father and your mother. Yeah, it w- not the best moment. No. <laughs> but uh, so I, the the terms under which my mother kind of remarkably was able to secure custody of my younger brother and me to take us away from Ireland. I mean, that was for the courts in that time to do that um, was, you know, I don't still really fully understand how it happened that she got custody, but the terms were that we would be raised Catholic in America, that we would learn Irish at home, kind of homeschooling, which my mother had a not large appetite for <laughs> being the homeschooler. Uh <laughs> And then thirdly, but it, it, in my memory of it, it felt almost like an afterthought to the courts, unfortunately, but was that we would spend all of our holidays in, in back in Ireland, that that would be the, the way in which my dad would, would um, you know, that would be the way in which he yeah. would share custody of us. And, and so the very first Christmas, Christmas of 1979, we came back. I was so thrilled to be back. You know, just even the rain was familiar <laughs> and the smells, uh, getting off the plane and going back to Hardigan's Pub, which is where I'd spent so much of my previous years before we'd gone to America with my dad as his sidekick, reading my little books in Hardigan's. So I went back with my brother, and we were back in the same routine. But my father was missing us, didn't think the custody arrangement was fair, I think a reasonable position on his part. Um, and the reason I think he did, wasn't able to make a stronger claim was because he was drinking an awful lot, and, and the judges must have known that. But he announces one day, you know, we're not going back. Like me and my brother, Stephen, we're, we're, we're staying with him, and that's it, and non-negotiable. And he tells my mother that. And so initially I'm expecting my mother to kind of burst through the door and there's going to be some big blow-up. But for a couple of days, things kind of progress. She's probably getting her house in order and figuring out what she's going to do because this is a uh, she has to go back and she's doing her residency to, to be delayed and to have some big injunction and who knows what probably was daunting to her uh, as a still relatively young woman. And also she was worried about my brother and me because there was a fair amount of drinking going on at the house, at the pub, at the, you know, his yeah. my dad's world. I mean, like many, but his world was sort of saturated. So Christmas Eve, my memory of it, an idyllic Christmas Eve uh, at my house in, in Ballsbridge, Dublin, and and where where I'd spent my prior years, and just back home with my toys, with my dad, with my books, and watching. I think we were watching the Sound of Music or The Wizard of Oz, like on this black and white TV with the antenna, you know, kind of <laughs> taped and what up and and uh, pulling Christmas crackers. And then there's a, a knock at the door very late at night, probably eleven o'clock at night, and it was my mother, and she basically said, "Come, come now," you know, in a very stern voice, which I didn't hear much from her as a kid. And my brother, just as his mother, goes running uh, to her. She, he is five at the time and just kind of nestles next to her in the in the kind of driveway or the path to the house. And I'm paralyzed because 
here's this moment, the two people I love more than any people in the world and, and who I trust. But And I've seen them fight, of course, for and argue, but this is – this is, whoa, what does one do? And so I take a step kind of toward my mother and then my dad says, no, don't go. And I'm and I just there between, you know, stuck in this kind of horrible um, Hobson's choice. And ultimately, my mother's more forceful. My dad probably knew deep down that he wanted to make a good showing and he desperately would have loved to have gotten sorted to be in a position to take care of us, but to be the full-time parent to two kids given his drinking, and maybe he knew deep down. So he sort of wasn't as forceful and authoritative in that moment as my mother was. And so I ran to my mother, got in the car, and then we, uh, you know, within a day had kind of hightailed it to the airport and, and you know, flew, flown back to America, cutting short uh, this trip and this visit with my father, which would have been dramatic under any circumstances. But then she laid down the law, like, since he did what he did and was trying to effectively, you know, keep us and violate the custody arrangement, he should come to America. He should give a showing of, of being capable of at least doing that. And again, it seemed to me um, like a manageable task, right? We had flown back yep. and forth now at least twice, and he could do it, but he never he never could get organized. So, never. so you never you never saw him again? That was the last... As it ha- oh, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I think what happened, uh, what I now know happened, but really wasn't, uh, didn't understand sufficiently at the time as a kid, but was that after that, you know, his the fact that we weren't going to be coming back for for vacations because my mother was going to be firm that he had to again make a make a showing and come to America. Um, I think for him, there that that those guardrails, what, whatever, to the extent that we were guardrails, to the extent that we were kind of giving him some incentive um, to keep it together. I think he lost that incentive and deteriorated again in a, a, a precipitous way, but in ways that I did not know about until I got the we got the call one day to say that he had passed away at age 47. Yeah, it's a, it's a really sad and it's a really, like, the, the you obviously have had complex emotions about this over the years. Where are you with that now? Because it, it seems like y- you blamed yourself for a certain period of your life, which obviously, it's not a kid's fault. No. Um, but that's, I, I can see how maybe you got that into your own head. How, how much, was it a thing that it was only really an adult life that you actually processed all your emotions around it? Well, I'd say... In one way, I'm still um, kind of living in the shadow of that event from from so long ago, 35 years ago, when I got the news. And in that way, I still, like even when I see my mother call me or, or my husband call me at a kind of hour I'm not expecting a call, my first thought is something terrible has happened. I mean, and, and so that, I've never been able to shake just the sense that when you're when things are going well, you know, and and when those you love are healthy, I mean, and it has a good effect, right? Savor it, mm-hmm. um, smell the roses, uh, enjoy it while you can, because it can be very fleeting. So so, and that I think gives me a I hope at least I think I've sustained a kind of spirit of gratitude. Um, I've started because of Trump <laughs> every night before I go to bed with a close friend of mine, John Prendergast. Um, we email each other th- the three things um, that happened during the day for which we are grateful because I realized I was letting kind of – it's so easy just to look at all that's that's going wrong or our divisions or, or you know, just the, your worry for your kids or for the next generation in light of how, how 
So lose hope, essentially. Yeah, you, yeah. But, yeah. And, but even like John is a sports nut like me. And so sometimes when we're really grasping, like what we're grateful for is a great at bat, <laughs> you know, like, or, Cat you know. Memes. Yeah, 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 seriously. I mean, it's like, it's not uh, the, the height of sophistication. But anyway, so the, these, this is a lasting legacy. But the, the thing that I've really tried to work on that wasn't a positive legacy was I did. I felt responsible. I felt I went back over that scene on the footpath where I was choosing between my mother and my father and and really, and others reinforced this for me when I was a kid, but the, the idea that had I made a different choice somehow, I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah. I, was, I was nine years old. There was no different choice really available to me, but it, it's not uh, atypical for uh, children to take on superpowers for themselves, you know, as if, and also a sense of if if I had been worth it somehow my dad would have given up the drink and and so you know some sort of latent self-esteem issues that that grow from not understanding what a disease addiction is and and so later coming to understand it cognitively but still not necessarily being able to to forgive myself and so I do I spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about therapy and like trying to dig into it and trying to just accept that you're you there's certain things that you can take responsibility for that are within your power to control. And to some extent, you have to surrender that sense of agency, especially when you're when you're a child. And now, it, one of the things that's helped me, I think, over my life is having children of my own. And, and just my, my son is 10 now, Declan. And, you know, I just think, what am I, what was I thinking? You know, I mean, how could this little person have had, um, had the kinds of effects that I regretted not having had when I was a kid? You said earlier, Samantha, that um, you you would have liked to have done this kind of job. You would have you would have been a sports reporter. How close did you come to? How close did did we come to knowing you from ESPN rather than the UN? <laughs> you know, life. It, it, there's a lot of serendipity involved in, you know, the course one takes. I mean, I was tracking in that direction, even in university. I got to go to an amazing university, Yale University from Atlanta, Georgia, where I'd gone to high school. And when I got to Yale, I aspired to play on the team, the varsity basketball team. I, I, I think I was only narrowly cut, but I was cut. Okay. And I was heartbroken. I mean, I'd been playing basketball had been a huge part of my identity. And I, you know, sort of looked around and thought, what's the next best thing besides playing, which is all I really wanted to be doing. And I thought, well, let me cover the team, which was initially uh, a bit achy uh, to be on the sidelines. But um, so I covered the women's team and the men's team, and there's still – dreadful recordings of thank god you didn't dig those up oh uh, hang on there might still be time <laughs> what are but, these recordings uh, this college radio work, yeah college radio okay. exactly. what well, was actually the town in fairness it was the town radio New Haven Radio WYBC well listen, if we start going down that road we no, might no, all no, have don't. some regrets as well so you know <laughs> exactly. they could be dug up on us as well so exactly that's it old. Yeah. and I loved it but I loved it so much in fact that um, after my first year at university I got an internships to, to work you know, at a television station's sports department, CBS Sports, in Atlanta, and was it was a dream job. I mean, and it was the kind of job I thought, I couldn't, I mean, how could you get it? Like, it's the perfect sort of uh, track uh, to get on in order to end up as a presenter or a commentator or even a print reporter. And there I am sitting in a 
sort of video booth which, where there's a bunch of different screens. One of the one I'm focused on is the Atlanta Braves are playing the San Francisco Giants in one of 162 regular season games. Mm-hmm. You, my job is to cut the sports highlights for the evening news and so record a home run or an error or a funny dance in the in the stands and and yet on there are the other feeds from CBS that are coming in from all over the world, one from Paris, one from New York, and one from Beijing. And as I'm sitting there, the feed from Beijing uh, projects uh, the student protests that had been going on. They had begun at the beginning of June, or actually late May, I think, of 1989, and they had actually gone well, which people forget today. For a few weeks, the Chinese government had allowed young people to sort of build little shanties, little bases in Tiananmen Square. There was a big question within the Communist Party about whether to let the protests continue, whether to even give in to some of the protesters' demands. But at the moment that I was there that day, um, the Chinese government made its choice, and, and it sent the tanks into Tiananmen Square and mowed down students with guns and bayonets, and it was ugly. And, and I watched just kind of and took note, of course, of the juxtaposition between the game that I was watching and so passionate about and then these events that and these... The, this repression being carried out against young people my age who I'm sure would have liked nothing more themselves than to be sitting hmm. and watching sports. Um, but it, was, it, was, it, it wasn't in that moment that I said, well, one day I'm going to be a member of the cabinet of the president of the United States and I'm going to be in a position to advocate on behalf of people. I mean, hardly. It was more, hmm, okay, I don't even know really what's bringing these young people out to the streets. I know that this is wrong, what I've seen, just on its face, like mowing down civilians is terrible. I know that I now have a question that I haven't posed before, which is, what is the United States or anybody going to do about it? So that was like a new thought where, because I never, I was pretty apolitical. And so all I did was I said, okay, alongside my sports obsessiveness and my traipsing around with these teams. And I had, at that time, I had picked up squash, actually, which my mother had played. But I became a much more serious student and, I, and, and became more political. I mean, it, probably at the time I saw the Tiananmen footage, I wouldn't have known if I was a Democrat or a Republican, for example. Really? Yeah, I mean, I was that kind of out of it. <laughs> um, and the, the differences between the two parties perhaps also weren't quite as great then as they are now. Um, but it really just meant like going back and being prepared to confront all the gaps in my knowledge, like to not be afraid of feeling dumb, um, which I definitely did when I, when I, because there was so little that I knew about current affairs. Uh, we had a newspaper, we have a newspaper to this day in America called USA Today, and they have one of the best sports sections of any newspaper. I'm not sure if that's still the case. But they, each of the sections was labeled. There's like a green section was the money section, blue or purple was entertainment, purple was entertainment, blue was like the main news section. And then the red section was the sports section. And, you know, I had subscribed to USA Today um, and I used to take the red section of the newspaper sort of between my thumb and my forefinger and then I would shake the rest of the newspaper <laughs> into the recycling bin. I mean, that's... Um, and when I went back after this Tiananmen moment, all, it didn't mean that I stopped following sports, but I subscribed to the New York Times. I read, you know, sort of very intentionally in order. And, I, you know, the sports section was my reward, you know, for getting through these dense articles about events in the world. But it was – I really had – it was – I had so much to learn. And all the change really was that I just became committed to trying. 
one of the tensions of this book, it actually says it on the back of the book, that you're moved from act, um, from activist outsider to government insider. How do you think the activists would rate the job done by the government insider? In terms of, to be specific, in terms of, of highlighting and helping to prevent atrocities around the world. A for effort, <laughs> but you don't get grades for effort. Um, I I think the me that was... Um, sort of thrust by virtue of my relationship with Barack Obama into um, a government job um, and, and into becoming an insider, the me in those rooms was me. Um, I, there was no shift really in my priority, no shift in my understanding of constraints. I know that's sort of the what you'd most expect is that you get in, you see it's all just so much harder. But I had as an activist and as a writer, I had done my best to interview hundreds of officials to try to understand like what were the impediments. I had a decent sense of that. But I think the what what was hard, you know, fundamentally is when you're actually sitting in those meetings, the there is so much you don't know. I mean, now I'd, by then I'd filled my gaps, and I knew uh, I <laughs> hope a lot about foreign policy, and and my ideas were grounded in what I knew about, you know, for example, uh, Boko Haram and where it came from, or you know, Ebola and how you stop it. I mean, it wasn't I wasn't ignorant on these things. I I tried to be a quick study and and to. And to get smart in a hurry, given the responsibility we had um, and and the relative power the United States has to provide resources uh, to deal with issues like those. But I think what's hard is, um, you know, you have also an American public that has grown over time skeptical about in certain quarters, still a majority of Americans want to lead in the world, but who have some doubts about how whether we can sustain our leadership, whether too many people are being left behind domestically. And so, you know, the, the, those kinds of constraints, you had a Congress uh, that, and I don't mean to blame others and not take responsibility for my own performance, I'll come back to that, but, but fundamentally, you know, to actually be in the room where after, for example, the Syria chemical weapons attack in 2013, it was surreal because so many members of the opposition, so many Republicans had been calling for Barack Obama to use military force even before a big chemical weapons attack. But then as soon as Obama himself came forward and said, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to retaliate and try to deter future chemical weapons use by hitting these targets, limited military action, but nonetheless a, a big step to take, those same Republicans just shamelessly kind of turned on a dime and said, no, 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 we're not for that anymore. <laughs> You're for it? Oh, not so much. Um, and so... To experience all of that, I mean, I mean, is um, a bit maddening. But I think what I what I did a, a, a good job of was elevating issues that had been traditionally treated as marginal. But w- what was hard was that there just are problems that um, present kind of dilemmas that where something's got to give. You know, someone's going to lose and. And so, for example, on Syria, which is, I think, my biggest, uh, all of my biggest regrets, I think, center on that chapter of our time because hundreds of thousands of people were killed. ISIS was able to set up a, a stronghold in the in the area in Syria and in uh, northern Iraq. Um, but it really was when you're in the room, President Obama, you know, not that long after the war in Iraq, a, a man who'd been elected to get us out of wars 
confronted with having deployed all the tools in the toolbox short of military force and just fundamentally, notwithstanding the imperatives of the conflict itself, believing that military force was not something that we could galvanize international or domestic support for and that when you go in without support, you're even less likely for it to make the difference that you seek. And so and so, I'd give myself, in terms of my effectiveness, my persuasiveness on Syria, a D, um, but on the set of issues where those lower cost tools before you get to the really tough issue of military force, which I think reasonable people can disagree on, but on those other issues, elevating it and deploying low cost options that didn't save every life, but I think made a profound difference. I feel I feel good about that part of it. Do you still believe in in um, military intervention as passionately as you did when you wrote A Problem from Hell, which was in 2002? I mean, there are there are lots of criticisms, but one obvious kind of problem with it, I guess, is that the you know the military intervention is like an elephant that tramples everything in its path. That it doesn't. Yeah. So so you know how, how did you how, how have you kind of how's your thinking on that developed? Well, I never believed in military intervention as passionately as you're as you're characterizing me. I believed in it in a specific circumstance, which was Bosnia, and where when it finally was, and again, in part because every other tool had been exhausted, there was a no-fly zone, there was safe areas, there was economic sanctions, and it was a small country, and it was the heart of Europe, and it was affecting, I think, the whole understanding of the post-Cold War order, and and I was there on the ground, and definitely I felt like it was important that NATO act, and when it did act, the war, but even coming back to the, the validity of your point, the war was brought to an end within like two weeks, but the underlying issues that gave rise to the war in the first place, of course, are not addressed by military force. They never will be. And so that's kind of the best you can get is something that halts horrific violence against civilians and then leaves the aftermath, the questions about how the aftermath and um, and the and again, the underlying tensions uh, will get resolved. And so... I opposed the war in Iraq, again, which could have been seen, it was, it was in fact justified in part as a humanitarian intervention. Using, I think some people even used your book to justify, which I don't Exactly. Well, and it, I, that's, I think, what gives people the impression that, um, that I was very hawkish sort of just intrinsically. But I, I just feel strongly that, that every circumstance where something like this would be coming to the president of the United States or to the UN or is different and and it really is about looking at are there other tools that you can employ that might make a difference that might jumpstart diplomacy which of course is always the preferred uh, end state but then you know in the Obama administration the other reason I think people associate me with humanitarian intervention is that even though I was a, just uh, the president's human rights advisor and not a senior advisor or most senior advisor to him but during the Libya crisis as well it came to us, you know, after there'd been a, a, a peaceful transition in Tunisia as the Arab Spring uh, took hold after Mubarak had stepped down in Egypt. Suddenly you had the same peaceful protests taking hold in Libya, Gaddafi turning his guns on his people, then the opposition militarizing and getting armed and, you know, taking on trappings of a civil war, but a civil war in which Gaddafi's side of the civil war had the means potentially to exact great vengeance. And where Gaddafi was pretty explicit that that's what he intended to do. And so there too, I mean, it was President Obama's decision, but I did think he made the right call of responding 
to the appeal by the Arab League, by NATO, by Libya's own ambassador to the UN who defected and, and basically said, help, you know, Gaddafi's going to not only crush the rebellion, but but slaughter people he suspects of being critical of him. And so there, I think, again, proves your point where NATO acts, it acts with the backing of the Security Council, even Russia just abstained on that. Um, the world was united that Gaddafi, that we should protect civilians and that Gaddafi should be stopped. But then you end, you, you, you avert that massacre and it doesn't, nothing you've done using air power is ever going to deal with what lies within Libya's society. And, and so I think, you know, now today there is a, a great skepticism about whether, um, again, whether the, the deep cleavages that exist in so many parts of the world, cleavages that would give rise, for example, to mass protests or may give rise to atrocities, but just skepticism not only about whether military force has a role or can have a role, but I, there's a skepticism now that is bleeding into uh, thinking, I think, about international action generally. And I think that's a shame because, you know, whether it's Ebola or climate change or sending peacekeepers to places where, again, you don't solve the underlying problems, but you at least offer civilians some protection – a huge amount of good has been done in recent years alongside, again, the ones that stand out as as, um, as places that have devolved into terrible violence like Syria and Libya. So would you say now then that looking back at the Syria situation, maybe the decision not to get involved was was the right decision, you know, in the sense that it's hard to see what, what an intervention could could have achieved. I mean, nobody, nobody knows what would have happened. This, yeah. this is the whole problem we're talking about it's impossible to prove a negative as well. You know, if you do it, what, did you avert something worse? Nobody will ever know. But looking back, was it the the best of a bunch of bad options for the United States not to be involved? I think if President Obama were here, and maybe you'll have him on one day when his <laughs> memoir comes out, big sports guy. Yeah, um, but I think he would, he, he, he is at peace, I think, with where, um, where he landed. I guess I see it a little bit differently, just... Um, the way I look at it, and again, we can't go back, so we will never know, but just when 500,000 people have been killed, and, and I shouldn't say he's at peace with what happened in Syria, to be clear, but just I think he thinks, in, to your point, in retrospect, all things considered, if I had to do it again, I'd probably land in the same place, whereas I see 500,000 people who've been killed in the war, uh, the displacement then that gave rise to that mass population movement in 2014, 2015, which I think was used by the people who supported Brexit and the people who supported Trump to say, look at the un uncontrolled hordes who are coming. And and so I think the sort of knock-on effects, there, Trump may have risen, Brexit may have happened for other reasons regardless, but it definitely, I think, had a set of collateral effects that were probably underestimated at the time. I just wish we had, when President Obama said he was going to use force, I think it weakened us to have threatened it and then to have walked away. I mean, and one level, I admire him so much. Um, it's a little, again, you can use a sports metaphor. Like, you know, often when you decide on a strategy for how you're going to approach things, you don't have the courage once you've made clear that that's your strategy to walk away from that. Um, like when you've invested, you know, in a lot of money in some player, like there's the sunk cost fallacy. Like you, you keep investing more rather than giving up on and and I admire in a way that, that President Obama always maintained that kind of independence of mind where 
just because he'd said he was going to do something publicly, if he revisited and thought it was actually, on reflection, a bad idea, he had the courage to... There's something admirable about that as a leader, and not enough people do it. You often just get sucked in because you've made some commitment, and then circumstances change, but you stick to that commitment. So fair play to him on one level. But it, I lived the effect. I think John Kerry or other diplomats lived the effect of people believing, you know, that America was tired, right? And you can't. I can't quantify it. I can't tell you, as you say, I can't tell you that had we followed through on what he prepared to do that Syria would look so different today, but it would have given us a chance at least to have leverage in our diplomacy where Assad and Putin didn't look at the United States and think, gosh, they're really in a kind of, they're, they're pulling back, you know, from the world and all bets are off and we can do what we want with the rule book, you know, let's go at it. I mean, that sense of impunity, I think that they had after that moment was one that led them to uh, pursue even more brutal tactics with time. And it wouldn't have been a panacea, but I think to signal that there were lines that you can't cross um, could have had some advantages and could have mitigated at least some of the harms that we've experienced today, but, but we'll never know. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's a special New Year's Eve episode of Second Captains with Owen, Murph and Ken. We've been enjoying the company of Samantha Power, who has absolutely nailed her case for being an obsessive sports fan. But we do need to find out about your own sports career, Samantha, because I don't know if it's been explained to you, but we do actually put a number on your sporting life Uh-oh, before we I let know. you go. So we need to get a little bit more in terms of, um, You seem to have played a bit of everything. You've told us about a few of the sports. Uh, also, Ultimate Frisbee is mentioned in your book and uh, touch football, water polo, all sorts of things. But as Obama himself asked you when you first had dinner with him on that very first night, were you any good? <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was in high school, and I was, my favorite sport, and the sport I guess I was best at was basketball. And um, But I was never the MVP. I was always like the hustle award, you know? And when I got to college, as I said, I didn't make the Yale varsity. It was division one, but it was Yale, which is seen more as an academic uh, powerhouse than an athletic one. And, um, but I then took up three on three basketball, um, traveled around the country, won the Northeast regional three on three, um, basketball championship. Um, but again, bearing in mind that we're not playing with var- varsity players are playing varsity, uh, but, the, but nobody's going to know about that here. Yeah, I know. I know. But it was, no, the level was high yeah. traveled like to the West and took on the Western champion. We didn't beat them, but, um, and then took up squash and I was on the Yale varsity and we, we I pl- ended up playing number five, uh, out of the nine players who were on the varsity. It's all challenge match. I started at like number 27 or something and clawed my way up the ladder. And I was very determined. And even alongside playing squash, I did play all those, those were intramurals that you mentioned. And at my sort of college kind of informal graduation dinner, as others were being nominated, like whatever, most likely to succeed, most likely to, you know, run for president, most likely to do this or that. I was voted most likely to come back from the intramural fields with bloody knees. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a sort of spirit and um, grit to my dedication to sports uh, that I took pride in. I ran marathons as a way of 
after I left college as a way of like trying to stay fit. And I play squash with my my husband, who's a terrific, I mean, much better squash player than I am. But so I, I like I think again, jack of all trades, master of none. Marathons, definitely. marathons, plural sounds impressive. Is that your highlight, or is there have we not covered your sporting highlight? I think my sporting highlight is because I was a walk on, as they say, to the squash team. Um, my senior year, I clawed my way up to number five, and you know, in a match, you you have to win five four, or, you know, it's best of the nine, the top nine, and it came down to one last match. It was four four, and each match is the best of five, and it was two two, <laughs> and I managed to win eighteen seventeen oh, in the fifth game clutch. to win three two to push us over the edge, and we won the team national championship, uh, national tournament championship with that with that victory. That is so. that is seriously clutch. That is impressive. I know you've been in some high pressure scenarios in the Situation Room and elsewhere, but surely this is the most nerve wracking moment of your life, Murph. Would you please rank this sporting life of Ambassador Samantha Power? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Ambassador, it's time for me now to evaluate all that you've told us here today of your sporting exploits and then assign to you a sports person that I think most closely resembles your sporting outlook so that we can rank all of this information out of 100 for our own nefarious and indeed tedious needs. That sporting highlight, which you've just described, at 3-2, 18-17 in the fifth, Yale squash grueler, is the sort of gritty, backs-to-the-wall performance that impresses even grizzled old sports hacks such as myself. Your interest in such a dizzying array of different sports, running, squash, basketball and the rest, reminds me of two people really, out of respect for your twin nationalities, Cork Jewel star from the 1990s Brian Corcoran, with whom of course you share an ancestral home, and Bo Jackson, all-star baseball player and American footballer, non-pariah. So where does this all leave us? Well, it's an extremely festive 83 points for you, the second highest score we've had on this show in 2019, so Samantha Parr. Ambassador Samantha Parr, this has been your sporting life. Oh, thank you so much. Sam, thank you. <laughs> it's been an honour and have a great 2020. Ambassador Samantha Parr, round of applause, please. Yes. Thank you. A little bit of Richard Hawley for you on this Second Captain's New Year's special. That one is called The Ocean. I told you Samantha Power loved her sport, didn't I? And we didn't even yeah. get to the anxiety dream she used to have about costing Obama his chance to run for president by taking him to a Yankees-Red Sox baseball game <laughs> and putting him on the wrong train afterwards. Look, you'll have to read yeah. the book, okay? It's called The Education of an Idealist. It just simply wasn't the time to go through every mm. single bit of sport. If, if you would run through from page one to page 500 or whatever... Uh, with every sports mention in uh, in those pages, yeah, we'd still be here for another couple of hours. I can't believe winning a national championship for her team in squash is only good enough for second place, but probably just as well you do avoid that awkward confrontation with Peter Hayne if you had oh, to wrestle that trophy off him. I you nothing if, I'm nothing if not non-confrontational. <laughs> I mean, you know, we sent him the trophy and everything, you know, the shield, oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. whole thing, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. Just it would be. I'd have to go all the way back to the engravers. It would be a nightmare. On. Well, guys, here we are. The end of one year. The beginnings of a new one. Are you hopeful for the world in 2020? Yeah. Hopeful, always, Owen. Oh yeah. Always hopeful. I mean, you ask hopeful, um, which I would differentiate from optimistic. <laughs> Not the same thing at all. Uh, but hopeful, yes. 
but not optimistic. No, I mean you, <laughs> you couldn't be. <laughs> you, you literally couldn't. Given be. all the known facts, yeah. to be optimistic would be Murphy. You're going to inject some crazy. some feel good vibes going into 2020. Well, as you know, I mean, we're a few hours away from New Year's Eve, mm. um, from the new year at this stage. Well, as you know, and I'm an avid student of the prophecies of Nostradamus. Uh, yeah, and the word on the street is that the 2020s will be the new age of Aquarius. On yes. I thought, that, I thought that started a few years ago. No, no, it's, it's the mid to late 2020s. I mean, again, you know, I, I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods here. Hmm. I, I still think 2020 is not going to be amazing. But what I'm saying is, by the end of the decade that we're about to begin, in just a few hours, everything's going to be all right. If every year could just get a tiny bit better than the last. Yeah. And you know how I know on? Some dude in the 16th century told me. So, <laughs> I mean, I actually was briefly... Quite obsessed with the prophecies of Nostradamus before I realized. So that was the, I. Yeah, the, I think I was aged about twelve. Yeah. Oh well, of course. Before yeah. you I mean, realized, I got a book called you know, "World's Greatest Mysteries" or something. And yeah. It, just, it tied I, together. Why did he tell them to burn all the documents? <laughs> <laughs> you know, first yeah. you must burn them. All right, that's it for now. As promised, we've taken you one hour closer to the end of 2019. If you feel like one of your New Year's resolutions is going to be to start supporting independent member-led broadcasting, mm, of course, we've got just a thing for you. Daily Second Captain shows available on secondcaptains.com. This show is produced by Mark Horgan and Simon Hick. Thank you to Killian Down for researching. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thank, Thank you, you Thank, Thank you, Ken. Ken. To play out the Second Captain's year, we want to end with something really beautiful, especially after Murph and Ken's not overly optimistic outlook on things. Hopeful, Owen. Just not optimistic, that's all. Here is the voice of David Bowie and a very special version of Sound and Vision to help lead us into 2020. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you next year. Say. Hey.